only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth Indianapolis 500. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Funny thing about the month of May in Indianapolis and funny thing about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway when Mother Nature doesn't cooperate, I have always said it is the most glorious place on earth that when the rains come feels completely and looks completely different than and everywhere looks a little bit different, but there's just something about it where you're like, I'm not going to say it's depressing because it's always good to be at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. But it's almost impossible to remember what it looks like under beautiful sun like we had yesterday on Tuesday. Today, a washout. The first time in, I believe, the five-year mark, five or six years ago yesterday, was the last time that a practice day was completely washed out. But that was the case today. No practice at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And it will resume, of course, noon to 6, Thursday and Friday, if you are listening to this live practice for the 106th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Good evening to you. My name is Jake Quarry. Mike Thompson joins in studio. Sam Rumsa is flying along as our riding mechanic. This is Beyond the Bricks, our discussion and look at nostalgic storylines of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. But, Mike, first off, let me say, and I guess we can tip behind the curtain for folks, although it doesn't seemingly matter because it is radio, but... You don't live in Indiana, so you've been doing the show remotely with us, and now you are here for the greatest time of the year, so welcome to the Circle City. Welcome home. Thank you. I am happy to be home. In fact, um, I, I was very excited to, to be able to come in the building today. I love I love coming down here to Emmis, and Emmis is always going to be home for me, so I'm very, very excited to be here today in person. And and since Sam is our riding mechanic, can we get him a jaunty hat? <laughs> some goggles? Yeah, some goggles. That's right. He is the mustachioed whiz, right? Yeah. I think actually he is, now that I look at him. He is the mustachioed whiz. Um, Mike, before we begin, somebody, Kyle Lewis asked, asked me a great trivia question that I wanted to uh, throw at you, and you and I had the same immediate answer. Kyle asked me the question of what number, in terms of a car number, has been used the fewest times in the 105 runnings of the Indianapolis 500, and I believe he said also happens to have the longest drought since its last use. You guessed immediately. But I, I actually, I've thought of a different one since you and I talked. Okay. So I initially said 13, and I remember Greg Ray used 13. I believe EJ Viso did as well. Um, and then well. Danica used it. Danica yeah. used 13. So there's actually one that has only ever been used once. And that's the other one I mentioned to you uh, just as we were going on the air when we were talking about the Denny Hume used 85. And I believe that's the only time 85's ever been used. Which is odd to me because there are so many i mean is there some sort of an aversion to 85 i i don't know yeah i i mean 13 is one that you, yeah. you kind of understand right why people would not use 13 yeah i you can see that um in fact in one there was one year that louis schneider asked for 13 and was flat out refused he was he wanted to be 13 and the officials told him no 
and they they told him forget it and you're not getting 13 and so that i mean it, i think there was at some point is somewhat of a prohibition against 13 even being in the race at some point so i've i've never understood in hotels when they don't have a 13th floor mm-hmm. don't people know when they're on 14 they're really on 13 you would think yeah <laughs> I just wonder, it, it is kind of strange it's not like there's a blank floor right yeah. It is kind of a strange uh, Numbers are going to be a fun thing that we're going to get into tonight on this episode of Beyond the Bricks. And we're talking about the number two, or as Reb Porter used to say, if you ever went to an Indiana Pacers game, two. Uh, the number two is significant, not only because this year is 2022, but also because if you go back, it's it sounds kind of like one of those presidential election type numerical things in terms of coincidence. But Mike, you came up with this and it's a ton of fun. But there's something significant about the number two in terms of years with the Indianapolis 500-mile race. There's a lot of interesting things have happened in the years ending in two. And so we did a show actually for the WIBC side of the building talking about the all the interesting things that have happened in the years ending in two. We talked about it uh, you know, earlier on. And Joe Dawson obviously won the race at De Palma, broke down and, and pushed the car. And, and Dawson held the record, as you mentioned the other night, for the the shortest distance led by a winner he held that record for 99 years which was how many laps he he led yes for two two laps right exactly so he he held the the record for for least amount led by a winner until dan weldon broke that 99 years later which i thought was interesting as well um and then after that you have um you know, you have just a lot. So many interesting things have happened in the years ending in in two. You have uh, uh, Murphy, and you have you know Fred Frame winning in thirty two, and so it's just a number of things in the int- early years. And then we're going to talk, I think, tonight. And of course, forty two, there 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 isn't one, which right. was was interesting as well, obviously. So we did a whole show talking about the uh, the years ending in two and so i thought tonight we'd do a few of those though and and i wanted to do them obviously tonight you know once we had the advent of of radio coverage and you know so we'd have a little bit of audio to go with it i mean you and i could we could wax philosophical about joe dawson and ralph mulford and those guys but uh, it's a little better if we if we bring the audio in tonight now here is the thing jimmy murphy as you mentioned tonight so we had joe dawson in 1912 jimmy murphy in 1922 from a historical standpoint, there is a connection with Fred Frame in 1932 because, and I believe, Mike, you may have been the one to point this out to me, but Donald and I have discussed it. Fred Frame is the first driver to have his name mentioned by Donald Davidson in an Indianapolis 500 broadcast. Right. Because Sid Collins asked him, I believe, you know, tell me about a different driver, and he picked Fred Frame. Picked so, Fred Frame. So that's one of the claims and, to fame there. And also, Murphy was the first winner from the poll. So that was another interesting little thing that happened. And then, as you mentioned, 1942, obviously no race. So that takes us to 1952. It is a race that, to some extent, Mike, let's be honest, 1952 will be mentioned still to this day unless well certainly if Colton Herta were to win the race Christian Lungard were to win the race Renus VK Renus VK were to win the race uh Troy Ruttman in 1952 became the youngest winner of the Indianapolis 500 mile race and that is a record now 70 years later that still stands and so therefore it will always be I guess mentioned but what's interesting is when people talk about that race 
and Troy Rutman's win, they don't necessarily always talk about Troy Rutman being the guy that most would say dominated the race, correct? Well, that's right. I mean, Bill Vukovic dominated the race. I mean, he led the majority of the race. Um, you know, Bill Vukovic had, you know, he he kind of burst on the scene. He, he was known. He had he had run in the 500 prior to that, but he really burst on the scene that year. And he he did dominate that race. I mean, he led 150 laps. So uh, that was obviously a, a year that that Vukovic really became a household name, but um, did not did not get the victory at the end of the day. And so 1952 was one of the races that, again, gets mentioned often. But let's take a listen back to exactly how it sounded. The 1952 race in Troy Rutman. Once again, race fans, on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Network, this is Sid Collins with a very exciting finish of the 36th annual running of the 500-mile race. Just before airtime, the most exciting thing in all the races we have seen in the past seven years occurred. Bill Vukovic and Troy Rutman in cars number 26 and 98, respectively, were running neck and neck. Vukovic, who's been leading since the ninth lap in the race, Back and forth with Rutman was just 28 seconds ahead of Troy. And Rutman had been cutting the lead down consistently for the past six laps, about two seconds for each lap. Vukovic uh, had won $14,000 in lap prizes at $100 per lap, so you can see how often he was ahead of the field with Rutman winning $3,400 worth of lap prizes. But on the 192nd lap, Vukovic in car number 26 hit the southeast turn. The car spun, hit the wall. The driver, Bill Vukovic, walked away from the, injury, well, from the accident uninjured and waved to the crowd in the stands. So Vukovic, who was within eight laps of possibly winning this year's 500, is out of the race. And Troy Rutman, in car number 98, a seemingly dark horse before this race today, is now leading. He's in first place, three laps ahead of Jim Rathman in car number 59. That is how it sounded. That is Sid Collins in the very first year of the IMS radio network in 1952. Troy Rutman would go on to get the win. You heard him mention the accident of Bill Vukovic. And it turned out that those two, even though they were competitors, were two guys that were actually friends with one another as well. Well, they were very good friends. And uh, that, that was an interesting thing about uh, the camaraderie amongst the drivers. And there were some that were considered great rivals that actually they were very close that is donald davidson the historian emeritus of the indianapolis motor speedway mike so much has talked about the fact that bill vukovic and we have seen this certainly in races i mean 1992 comes to mind that we will get to later in terms of somebody dominating a race and then suddenly somebody else becomes the winner in 1952 there was always so much discussion when bill vukovic was fatally injured sid collins caught himself by saying he was nearly a three-time winner. And I think many people believe, as we've talked about on this program, that he was saying that Vukovic was, you know, inferring that Vukovic would have won the race in which he was fatally injured. He was likely referencing in his mind the 1952 race. But to say that Bill Vukovic had the race in hand and Troy Rutman only won because of a failure maybe is up for discussion. 
Yeah, and this is actually one of the things that Donald and I talked about several times, and, and I always kind of got a kick out of talking to him about this because I had this misconception for many years. I thought, oh, Vukovic is dominating. He he brushed up against the wall, and, and Sid, and they embellished that a little bit. I mean, what happened was, there, the, you know, there was a problem with the steering and problem with the steering pin, and, and Vukovic, he got up high against the wall, brushed it up against the wall. He didn't spin. I mean, there wasn't it wasn't as dramatic as it sounded there in that clip um he brushed it up against the wall and he was out of the race obviously um but i always had that thought that you know here vukovic is dominating running away with it brushes you know up against the wall and and what donald told me and and we will about to hear is is actually troy rutman was was hauling the mail and troy rutman was reeling him in at the end of the race and it might have been one of those you know mears johncock situations you know that would we're going to hear about later on in this show so the 1952 clarification if you will here is donald davidson I think the, probably the, the, the popular misconception is that Vukovic was running away with the race and that he had the problem late in the race, that he hit the wall. Well, he didn't, actually, he didn't hit the wall. He, uh, they had a steering failure, and he went up and brushed along it to get slowed down. And then uh, Rutman won. And the theory being, oh, you know, that he handed it to Rutman on a, on a platter. Well, uh, Rutman ran some very fast segments, and to take nothing away from Vukovic, he was slowing down, and the steering was tightening up. And Rutman apparently was was gaining quite considerably, and at the time Vukovic went out, I think it was like 30 seconds or something, and uh, the crew had figured out that at the rate Vukovic was going and at the rate Rutman was going, he probably could have caught him anyway. Mike, 1962, 10 years later, is another one of those races where we saw driver domination early. Of course, it's not surprising in any race that featured Parnelli Jones that Rufus Parnelli Jones would dominate a race. That was kind of par for the course in the races in which he participated. But in 1962, Parnelli Jones jumped out to a lead that we have not seen Every so often, I guess we do, but it's been a while since we've seen somebody jump out and lead nearly the first, what, over the first quarter of the race. Parnelli Jones led the first 59 laps of the race. So Parnelli was on his way to a dominating day. Yeah, I mean, Parnelli, that was the year, of course, he he became the first to to break through the 150-mile-an-hour uh, barrier, got the, the 150 silver dollars from Fid, uh, Phil Headback. You know, Parnelli had a great car that day. And, you know, we we know that because the next year he's going to come back and, and get his victory. But Parnelli really, a lot of people will tell you, um, and Roger Ward will even tell you, that uh, the, the moral victor of the 1962 race is going to be Parnelli Jones. Now, Parnelli dominates this race, but he ends up having a brake problem. And at, he was out there just trying to collect lap money because he, he at that point, starts realizing he's having a brake problem. He thought he was out. And he comes in at one point. And he's thinking, "Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm done." And they, they sent him back out. <laughs> and so he had to ch- keep trying to just kind of figure out a way to to get this thing to to uh, to slow down enough. Uh, when he was coming into the pits, they threw out tires. I mean, that's how they were actually s- slowing him down in the pits. They they put tires out there for him to kind of bounce off of to slow the car down because he couldn't stop in the pits. So, I mean, he salvaged a seventh out of it. Um, but it was a day that Parnelli probably should have won the race because he was clearly the the class of the field. And I think that. Parnelli Jones is pretty open about the fact, if you talk to him, 
about it. Uh, you know, that was one of the biggest challenges he had as a driver. And Parnelli had certainly some obstacles over the course of his career, Mike. But, I, you know, he would be the first to tell you if you talk to him about it, um, which you and I both have had the, the, the fortune and the pleasure to do at times. But um, I know this sounds crazy, but I, listen, I know Parnelli Jones is very proud of a lot of things, rightly so, in his racing career. I've always gotten the impression that he does take a pride in the way that he was able to to handle and kind of salvage that race under the circumstances. Oh, absolutely. There's no question. I mean, you think about the fact he could have won 61. He got the rock in the face, you know, and and, and was bleeding and, and pouring blood out of his goggles and things like that happened to him in 61. Then 62, he probably should have, certainly should have won, had the brake problem, but was able to salvage a, you know, a finish out of it, went all 200 and salvaged a seventh. But, you know, he... What an amazing driver Parnelli Jones was, and you're right. He he was proud of, and he was very proud of of how other people reacted to that drive, as I think we're going to hear here in a little bit too. May 30th of 1962, it was the 46th running of the Indianapolis 500 mile race. Roger Ward and the leader card 500 Roadster is the one that took the checkered flag, and here's how it sounded. Pat Vidan, the starter, has the checkered flag out. Coming down the main stretch now is Roger Ward, the winner of the 1962 500-mile race. Now, Roger Ward, Mike, as you were telling me, look, it's always great. I remember, speaking of the twos, um, in 1982, Dean Smith in North Carolina won the national championship on an, not, I'm not going to say on an errant pass by Freddie Brown, but it certainly was a big assist to it in college basketball. 11 years later in 1993, Dean Smith won the national title and said in the post-game press conference, listen, if it weren't for an injury elsewhere, and I'm not going to say the team because people will think I'm biased, you know, I, I don't know that we're in this position. So there are people who can win something and still tip the cap to, you know what, maybe it wasn't my day. Oh, and Roger Ward was an outstanding ambassador for racing. I mean, just great. And, you know, he had a, a little bit of a rough start to his career. And by the time he had gotten with uh, with leader card, with, with Wilkie and Watson, you know, became really a just a just a true ambassador than the rest of his his life in racing and and you're right he was one of those guys who was able to say you know what uh today was my day but it probably should have been somebody else's here's roger ward in victory lane well thank you very much it's certainly a pleasure to be back here of course we were awfully lucky to beat pernelli if he hadn't had trouble i don't know couldn't have beat him but the car ran wonderful all day long and we were lucky so we won her your pit times looked real good on that record sheet roger well thank you very much did you have to change your strategy? Did you have any problems, any pre-race changes? Well, I couldn't run quite as fast as I'd hoped I could earlier, but uh, actually the car performed very well. Who had you planned on watching throughout this race? Who had you been looking for? Who was I? Well, Parnelli. Couldn't find him. Any one of 32 others, huh? Yeah, all of them were in there. Boyd, he had trouble, but he was running real well. And, uh, my teammate, of course, gave me a real tough go there at the end. So you heard him say, Parnelli, I couldn't find him, right? But even though he wasn't found, Parnelli must have been within, I guess, listening distance, earshot, if you will, because Parnelli Jones was aware of the compliment and appreciative. Well, I think it does, because when you get compliments from your uh, peers, so to speak, I mean, what else can you ask for? I mean, uh, they certainly had a Roger had a lot of respect for me as I had for him. Speaking of Roger, he was talking there about Roger Ward. But there was another Roger that would come to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and literally and later, well, I guess figuratively, actually, and then later literally own the place. But it all began on a year with a two. We'll get to that 
among other years when we return to Beyond the Bricks. Wife of Joe Leonard, driver of the Samsonite Special. There's a lot of pretty important dates for Joe and I, but this coming June, there's an extra special date, our daughter Deborah's high school graduation. I wanted to buy her a gift she would appreciate and really use, so I bought her a set of Samsonite luggage. It's sturdy, dependable, and it's great looking. If you know somebody that's graduating this June, think about Samsonite luggage. It's a gift they really can use. Now stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing. Grocery shopping takes on fun. Handy Andy, the interesting one, so walk on in. You know you race. Candy Andy treats you great with big wide aisles. Friendly smiles, big wide aisles. Friendly smiles, Candy Andy. Treat you great with big wide aisles. Friendly smiles, big wide aisles. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I know back in 1971, people that came here with their Samsonite luggage immediately went to Handy Andy because it didn't matter how big the luggage was. They had wide aisles, man. And friendly smiles. <laughs> they had all of that. That first ad sounded so natural. Oh, yeah. She wasn't reading that at all. She was she was selling the luggage. <laughs> Nineteen that the first one was from seventy one or 71. Handy Andy. Though they're both from seventy one. That Beautiful. actually now Handy Andy, believe it or not, if I have one second to tell you, Handy Andy was a uh, grocery store chain in San Antonio, Texas, of all places. And um, I have a a seventy one race broadcast that has all the commercials in it from a San Antonio station. And it has all these just crazy random commercials in it and so i didn't want to cut it off after the samsonite spot because i i like the handy andy so much well it's there's quite the dichotomy there of yeah. mood right, <laughs> right. like <laughs> like literally it went from an ad that sounded like it might have run during the middle of like the andy griffith show into something from the brady bunch oh yeah you know? yeah there was, was a handy lot andy. there was a lot going on in that minute well the year after 1971 was 1972 and this is a race Mike, that quite frankly, I think, and you may disagree with me here. Mike Thompson, by the way, the voice you hear there. My name is Jake Quarry. It is Beyond the Bricks. Thank you for joining us tonight. Mark Donahue in 1972 came in one of the, you know, he was running one of the, the beautiful cars, really, I've always felt, uh, the Sunoco McLaren. And I understand why it is. But Mark Donahue is one of those drivers that I think, quite frankly, Mike, over the course of time, probably has not gotten his proper due. Because we talk about drivers of the era. I mean, he 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 had the misfortune of his win kind of being sandwiched between, you know, the Johnny Lightning special back-to-back of Al Unser and then, you know, the, the just so much tragedy-filled, bizarre nature of 73 – and then for Donahue himself, of course, not one that, that you know, lived long beyond his win. You tell me if you disagree, but I just have always felt like it's one that kind of got lost in the shuffle, so to speak. A little bit, but what's interesting is, um, you know, that about my autograph collection and my connections, you know, with the Indianapolis 500, the, you know, the Indy Memorabilia Club, I get asked about Mark Donahue more than you would expect, honestly. Really? 
in fact that's good to hear actually in fact the the three i get asked about the most in order jim clark first bill vukovich second mark donnie who would be third so and and not counting the people like way in the back you know that that nobody has you know i mean the guys that i'm still looking for i mean the dario restas and the people like that 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 i'm still i don't even have those guys um but but yeah donahue is extremely popular and what's what i think is interesting is we talk a lot about people who you know parnelli just we just talked about him in the last block i mean the moral victor of 1962 didn't get it but then the next year he gets his win right but in I feel the same way about Mark Donahue. 71, Mark Donahue's dominating the race. I mean, running away with the thing. He leads 52 of the first 66 laps, and it's just he's gone and then drops out. And then the next year, he only leads 13 laps, and he wins the race uh, because his teammate uh, has a problem, Gary Bettenhausen. And, and obviously, that would have been an extremely popular win if Gary could have held on, but, but he had ignition problems. And you know that would have been a, a wildly popular win if Gary Bettenhausen would have would have been able to take it for Penske as well, but it's just kind of weird how those things work out. You know, Pen, you know, Parnelli didn't get his win in '62, then he gets it in '63, and Mark Donahue didn't get it in '71, gets it in the next year in '72. So in 1972, as you had mentioned, Gary Bettenhausen led 138 laps of the Indianapolis 500 mile race, the 56th running of the event. But Mark Donahue led the most important lap, the final one, completing a 13-lap run where he led and then ultimately took the Sunoco McLaren to the first victory for the owner of his car, Roger Penske. Here's how it sounded in 1972. Well, blue skies overhead and a beautiful blue car leading this thing. There he goes right now. He's into that home stretch, and boy, a big pocket full of greenbacks in his pocket. And here's Sid Collins. And here he comes. And there's the checkered flag for Mark Donahue, winner of the 1972 Indianapolis 500-mile race. Now, what's interesting about that, by the way, 218,763 greenbacks is what he collected that day. Uh, What's interesting about that is Roger Penske, and for those that are unfamiliar, the parking spots at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway now, the parking spot for... All of the executives has simply their initials in the designated spot for them. With the exception of Roger Penske, it does not say RP. It simply says 18 because he has won 18 Indianapolis 500-mile races. That was the first. But, Mike, what we have since learned from Roger Penske, am I correct in saying, is that it might have been his first win in Indianapolis, but he was even kind of on a clock to get that first one. Yeah, and I found this this interview very interesting. Actually, that uh, at the time I didn't know that this uh, that he was on basically some sort of a clock, and and they they planned to win in a certain amount of time, and so I thought this was actually pretty interesting. So here is Roger Penske talking about that McLaren win in 1972. Well, the 72 uh, McLaren was a, a car that could not be beat by anybody else when you think about it. We went there in 71 with the first car with wings and I remember when they were used to have a, a watch and a card to figure out how fast you were going. We went over 180 and it wasn't even on the car. Then we come back in 72 with the speed with Gary Bettenhausen and certainly with, with Mark and, and to me to get into victory lane I told the Sunoco people it would take me three years get in the in victory lane. We were a year late I guess but had speed in 71 
remember the 72 car is, is iconic when you think about the size of the rear wing and the downforce it started a whole new revolution at the speedway but uh, to me it was our first win one i'll never forget and there was not a better person in my lifetime as a friend and a driver as mark donahue roger pinsky on the 1972 win when we come back speaking of the number two a couple of years that ended in two sequentially and in both of them it was not one but two cars that dashed to the finish that when we come back to beyond the bricks radio indiana WIBC Indianapolis. Page, the chief announcer of the IMS radio network in 1982 with the historic finish between Gordon Johncock and Rick Mears. The rest of the personnel, Ron Carroll, was in turn number one. Turn number two, Doug Zink. Turn three on that call that you heard was Larry Henry. And in turn four, the man that would later become the chief announcer, Bob Jenkins, in what I believe that or the next one we're going to hear Probably the greatest closing lap in the history of the radio network. Mike, agree or disagree? I agree. Those two are great. Um, I, it's just it still gives you chills to listen to that. That and and the fact that we just played Chuck Riley doing the Radio Indiana. The, that is just one of my favorite things of all time. Interestingly so. enough, as a trivia question, oh, the Chuck Riley iconic Radio Indiana that you just heard. Do you know who was the last? human to push a button to air that over live radio i do not know who the last human was i know you you did a nice service to all of us and you recorded that for us i did in terms of let me rephrase that in terms of well clearly the last one to do it to be used as a call at the top of an hour is the most recent to do it because Sam Rumsa, you were the one that pushed that sounder, correct? Yes. When 1070 went off the air, the powers that be had me come up at midnight because I was running the overnight shift at the time and had me play that at 1159 and 50 seconds. So that was the, that ID was the last thing heard on 1070 a.m. And what's funny is a few years earlier, our friend uh, Matt Hiblin asked me, he said, uh, I've got a job for you tonight. And I was running the board on IBC one night, and I forget what we we had on. We had some syndicated show on that night. And he goes, I need you to play this because if you don't play this particular ID, we lose the rights to it. Or I mean, there was some FCC reason that I had to play it. 
And I said, okay, that's fine. Whatever. What, what is it? And then he played it for me, and I said, oh, I'm playing that because I don't want to lose the rights to that because it means so much to me personally because the first thing I ever heard in Indianapolis was that. I was asleep in the back of the station wagon because we had had this long trip from Toledo and we, there was an accident and all the stuff and we got there late and I'm laying in the back of the station wagon and we were getting, going to this waffle house that used to be down on 16th street. We we're heading to this waffle house, but I was trying to doze. Cause I mean, you're 12, you're not used to being awake all night. And all of a sudden my uncle Ron turns up the top of the hour sounder and blows the doors out of this entire station wagon it's just this radio indiana and uh, you know and i was like it reminds me me up mike i think everybody has memories like that it reminds me of being at my grandparents house in claremont you know they had the the radio like every house in the 60s had the little radio intercom system in the house and they always had it on wibc and so when i hear that i think of exactly that. But speaking of, you know, all of those, Matt Hiblin asking you to play that, Sam playing it, um, you know, is everybody that was within a team here at Emmis at different points that had to play that or, or keep it afloat, if you will. And radio becomes a team effort, and that certainly was the case in 1982. The names that I just mentioned on the 82 broadcast, Paul Page, when he took over the radio network in 1977 from Sid Collins, is one that really was credited with advancing or modernizing the play-by-play the roundies as we call it now when you go from turn one to turn two to turn three to turn four um and by the way shameless plug if you'd like to know still to this day the same as a matter of fact i believe somewhere in the mid 80s so very shortly after that the equipment that we use today the still the headsets they were designed for the ims radio network out in the turns and the system that we use is really pretty simple And if you want to see where that all takes place, you can go to on the YouTube page for this radio station, 107.5 The Fan. There is a series uh, that I did, the digital folks here did it with me, called The Gold Badge, where we went around to show behind the scenes, and that includes showing up close the radio network. But Paul Page was well aware of the fact that those iconic calls from 1982 in the turns were all part of his envisioned team effort. I'm glad you mentioned the team in that because radio at that level is very much a team. And we realized as they came off of their last stops, we started doing the math on how much Rick was closing. And we thought, wow, we get to the white flag. Those two mathematically are going to be side by side. So on this private intercom i said guys let's let's play this and we'll play i mean we normally would play the the leaders but we might go a little bit deeper and try to cover down through five going to the checkered flag and we stayed with that and we were excited about it i always believe that the announcers need to be guys with passion those guys certainly were and the passion came through and the the script was there and we just played a part And so the timing worked out because they nearly did go, of course, side by side. Rick Mears making the move to try to get the pass. And then to his naked eye, Paul Page realized how close it was and announced mathematically at the checkered line or at the checkered flag at the Yard of Bricks just how close it was. Yeah, and that was then and continues to be to this day a a fairly fairly large burden because it's the one program of the year that you realize 
has great significance. It's not just another program. It's the Indianapolis 500-mile race, and you can't get it wrong. Um, and you have to be so careful because because of its importance to all the participants and to the fans, it's, it's got to come through right. And um, so you're thinking about that. And when you're looking at that close a finish, fortunately, where I was was directly over the start-finish line. I had my little old digital watch, and for some, we, would been, we had been timing down the intervals uh, to watch them close. And I'd gotten kind of in that habit, so as they came across the line, I, I clicked the watch on the interval. But... John Cock definitely had it. There's no, that wasn't a question in my mind. But when I looked down and then later looked in the newspaper, I found out that I'd actually clicked off the, um, the exact interval. I, I had it right. So, uh, I mean, there have been other finishes that have been close, uh, but that one, that one still stands alone as, because of its nature, the finish that matters. It's interesting because he talks about the fact, and he's right, that there would be others that were close that one stands out to people because of the lap by lap by lap chasing of Gordon Johncock by Rick Mears. But it turns out it would be 10 years later. Bob Jenkins, who I think had a fabulous call on that 1982, I believe the greatest call in the history of the network was him throwing it to Paul Page from turn four in 1982 because the the excitement and the drama is in his voice without wavering or cracking, which is a very difficult thing to do. Bob Jenkins was the chief announcer 10 years later for another fabulous finish. Dwayne Sweeney waves the white flag. One to go. A three-car length separation between Unzer and Goodyear. And that's how they come through number one. The gap gets closer and closer and closer in front of Gary Lee. Indeed, about three or four car lengths as they work off the second corner for the last time. Headed down the backstretch. Headed right at you, Larry Henry. Scott Goodyear, Chuck right in behind Al Etcher Jr. He's waiting. He's waiting about a car length and a half behind. That is the call from Bob Jenkins, the late, great Bob Jenkins, Jerry Baker in turn number one, Gary Lee in turn number two, the late, great Gary Lee, Larry Henry in turn three, and Bob Lamy in turn number four. You could hear probably the the sigh of Derek Daly, who was the driver analyst that year. Mike, I love that call because to me it shows the tremendous professionalism and passion, enthusiasm, and excitement of Bob Jenkins but the total professionalism of Bob Jenkins as well. Yeah, it doesn't get any better, and and that's one of the things I used to like to talk to Bob about is, you know, if you were going to say, here's play-by-play of a sporting event for radio at its best, you'd pull that off the shelf, and you'd, you'd, you'd take it to a class or wherever it is because it doesn't get better than that. You just can't find anything that's better than that. And so I used to enjoy talking to Bob about just how good they were that day. Of course, after the last Indianapolis 500, unfortunately, we lost Bob Jenkins to a brain tumor. As dear a man as anybody could ever ask and as good a broadcaster as anybody could ever anticipate, 
Bob Jenkins sat down with Doug Bowles and talked about that iconic 1992 finish. But you will remember, and if you listen closely to the 82 call by Paul Page, um, my call is very similar to his when uh, he had that extremely close finish. But yes, it still gives me uh, chills, and I just, again, don't know who to thank the most for giving me the opportunity to be a part of the radio network and, of course, the closest finish in history, 1992, between Scott Goodyear and Al Unser Jr. What a, what a thrill it was, and yes, I still get cold chills when I hear it uh, on radio or wherever. I have always said there is no person, Mike, that I have ever met that had a greater disparity between their level of accomplishment and the rank within their field and their own awareness thereof than Bob Jenkins. And I mean that in a good way. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, uh, I always loved how he would just say he was just one of us. He was because he was. He was just a he was a race fan who had one of the greatest jobs in the world. And he, he treated everybody as a friend. Um, whether he knew you for decades or if he just, if you walked up to him on the Pagoda Plaza and said, Hey, I want to talk to you about the 1992 finish, he would give you the time to do that because he was just, that was the kind of guy Bob Jenkins was. A race fan who got lucky, I think, is what his famous yeah. quote was. And he always says about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and I certainly thought this yesterday, it's just a great place to spend the day. And yesterday, it certainly was that. It was not necessarily today. We are hopeful that it will be tomorrow and Friday. And who knows? It is a year that ends in a two, which means we might see something this year that we have never before seen. I agree. I think uh, I think since it's a year ending in two, I think we've got a pretty good chance. And that means, Mike, perhaps 50 years from now, there might be two guys that are – it's probably not going to be the two of us that will be talking about the fact that 2022 falls right in line, right? That's right. Keeps the trend. We didn't even get to the fact that – of course, you had the 2002 finish in which Elio Castroneves and Paul Tracy ended in controversy, and then the 2012 finish, which was an incredible finish between Takuma Sato and Dario Franchitti. So, in fact, in the years that end in a two, yes, in fact, oftentimes it is not one, but two that are involved in the finish. For Sam Rumsa and Mike Thompson, my name is Jake Quarry. Again, tomorrow, practice resuming at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway from 12 until 6. Same holds true for Friday. Then Saturday and Sunday, it is qualifying for the 106th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. You folks have a great night. This has been Beyond the Bricks.